The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Okay, this morning's scripture reading comes from Luke 10, 25-37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, it is great to be here to share God's word this morning. What a great break from loading pods to come and preach a sermon. (laughs) My wife and I have always enjoyed being here in worship with y'all at Music Row. We have good friends here. And so I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity to worship God together here this morning. We're starting a new teaching series at Christ Pres this week at each of our campuses on the parables of Jesus. And as we heard a moment ago, today's story is the parable of the Good Samaritan. For a quick crash course on parables, these are essentially short stories that convey a big idea. And so parables are different from allegories where everything is symbolic in that parables are meant to convey a singular big idea. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, there are images and you can find charts online that map out what different subjects and items in the story represent and it's just super complex. But if you want to know what a parable is, think not Pilgrim's Progress, but Tortoise in the Hare. Slow and steady wins the race. This is much more my speed. You don't need a chart to understand that. Parables were a common teaching method in Jesus' day among Jewish rabbis, but also wisdom teachers as a whole. And so it's a natural fit that he uses them throughout the Gospels to illustrate key points about what living in the kingdom of God is like. And so throughout this series, we'll look at eight different parables that Jesus taught. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is one of the best known parables of all time, right? If you're here this morning and you're brand new to thinking about faith, I imagine that you have probably heard this story before. Listen to this. There are ministry organizations named after this parable, 
a retirement home, a health center, and even an animal clinic, and that is only in Nashville. If you don't believe me, pull up your Google Maps right now. I'm not kidding. And this story, it's so widely known, but I want to pray for us. I know Stacy just prayed, but I want to pray for us that we'd be able to hear from God in a fresh way today. I think sometimes when we're familiar with God's word, we can take those lessons that we know as uh, assumption that we've probably figured out what this story has to offer, but I want to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would teach us, uh, challenge us, encourage us according to what God would do in our lives and in our hearts here this morning. So would you join me? Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be together and look around the room with others who are journeying in life and faith. Uh, we know some of one another's stories. There are some of the things that we're going through that only, only you know what's on our minds. Only you know the things that we're wrestling with. But we give this time to you and we come to you with a sense of expectation that you are among us and your word is alive and active and that there are things you want to do in us and through us even now. So would you enlighten our minds and our hearts in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Well, I want to share with you, a couple of years ago, my wife Brittany was away visiting family, and she was driving home. It was late at night, and so I told her uh, at the end of this long trip, it was six or seven hours, I told her, as I often do, hey, I love you, but I'm going to bed. That said, I'm leaving my phone on, and call me if you run into any trouble. And I don't know if any of you have that similar conversation, but... Never before and never after have I actually gotten a phone call. But that night is the one that I did. And it was around 10 p.m. and my wife was a little over an hour from home and she had come off the interstate. She was driving on a state highway in Indiana where we were living at the time and she hit something in the road and it caused her car to have a flat tire. And so when I got a call from Brittany, she was in a gas station parking lot and she let me know that she had hit a flat and we had a conversation and came up with a game plan. I have to be honest, at that point in time, I had no idea how to change a flat tire. And so I said, hey, let's call roadside assistance because they can get to you more quickly than I can. But also I knew like, man, I don't know about that. <laughs> and so we called roadside assistance because that was the responsible thing to do. And they let her know that it was gonna be a really long time before they could get there. And so not knowing what else to do, uh, we're talking on the phone and I'm prepping to go out and, and meet her. When all of a sudden in her conversation, I hear her start talking with a guy at the gas station who let her know that he could change the flat. He offered to put on her spare. I wanna tell you at that point in time, my wife and I were watching a lot of Dateline. And so instead of thinking about the kindness of a stranger, I was very concerned about all of the ulterior motives, as was she, that were surely taking place behind the scenes. Uh, but Brittany assured me he didn't seem too creepy and that there were people around. And so she agreed to let him change her spare. And he made short work of the job. Thankfully, she was back on the road in no time. And she made it home without further incident. And I share that story. We don't know this guy's name. We never got his name, never seen him again. But the helpfulness of a stranger in a situation where we really had a need and we felt some anxiety and he stepped up in a big way, that memory has stuck with us. I think that you probably would be able to remember similar moments in your life when someone stepped up and served you and met you with mercy in a way that made an impact on your heart. I think experiencing the kindness of a good Samaritan, it has a way of leaving a mark on us. And so as we think about today's story, I want to give you a little bit of background that I believe will help this to make 
the parable even more relevant to our lives. This story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's only shared in Luke's gospel, and that makes sense. Luke had a particular interest in communicating about God's heart for people and groups that lived on the margins of society, and so it makes sense that this would be a story he would prioritize in sharing the events of Jesus' life. And as we look at this story, I want to work through it, like I said, with an eye toward the context on, in which Jesus shares this. But before we wrap up, I want us to answer three questions, and here they are. First is, what's the big idea that Jesus is communicating? If parables have a punchline, what is the big idea? Second, what does this story say about how people can be right with God? And then finally, what do we see that God's word teaches us here about how God's people ought to relate to others. What are our obligations that we owe to our our fellow men and women who are also created in God's image? And so let's think about the context. If you're following along, we're in Luke chapter 10, and Jesus is speaking with an expert in the law here. And to give you a bit of an understanding of this dynamic, this expert in the law, he's a Jewish teacher who had a prominent position in Jewish culture and their religious system. He checked all of the boxes that were required to be a voice that really carried weight. And so Jesus, he's talking with him. Jesus is kind of an upstart religious teacher himself, um, much different than this teacher of the law. He'd not been formally educated. He'd not followed those formal paths that were typically associated with a leader of standing in Jewish society. And so, I don't know, if I'm in Jesus' position, I'm feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome, but we certainly don't see that here in the passage today. They're having this conversation, and the teacher in the law, he gives Jesus a question that's getting his take on the age-old existential question, what is it, what is required of me to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And like I said, this existential question, this is one that has stood the test of time, right? We don't get an indication whether this man is genuine in seeking Jesus' answer or if he's more probing for a response as a litmus test on Jesus' theology. I think the latter is probably the case because the story that Jesus shares in response uh, is certainly one that would have made this man squirm in his seat a little bit. But whatever the case, he asks him that age-old existential question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know, 2,000 years plus later, there's so much that's changed in the world, but there's also a lot that hasn't changed. And listen to this, a study was published in December 2021 by Lifeway Research, where they polled over 1,000 Americans Uh, And I know it's Lifeway Research, which is a Christian company, but listen, they polled a variety of people representing a diversity of ethnic, religious, and gender backgrounds, people from different geographical regions, levels of education, socioeconomic status, all throughout our country. So really, this is a representative population of our nation. And 55% of people agreed that it's very important for them to know that they will go to heaven or have eternal life. So 55% said it's very important to them. Another 19% said it's important. And so that's nearly 75% of people in our nation from all different backgrounds would say it's important to them to sort out what eternity is going to look like. This is a timeless question. And what we can know from that statistic is there may be a lot of people who we interact with who seem to have no interest in conversations about life and faith or religion but they're actually wondering in a very personal and serious way about what the future holds for them. There's a lot of opportunity for us to engage in meaningful conversations around this. 
And so this man, he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you know Jesus, he likes to answer tricky questions with another question and draw out the person's own perspective. And that's exactly what he does here. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He probes this man to share his perspective based on their shared sense of authority, which was the Jewish law. And so this expert in the law, here's his response. He says, love your Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And so this is one of the most foundational teachings of the Jewish faith coming from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he beefs it up even at the end, adding an additional command from the book of Leviticus. He says, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this guy, he knows the word. He's got it down. And so what is Jesus' response to this man on what God requires? Jesus' response is, yeah, that's pretty much on point. Do this and you will live. But what we see as we continue on in the story is that there's more to it. In verse 29, we read that the man, in desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In desiring to justify himself, he says, and who is my neighbor? So this is where a principle begins to emerge in the passage that's really central to today's teaching. And it's this, that it's one thing to know the truth, but it's another thing to actually believe it in our hearts and live accordingly right? It's one thing to believe the truth. It's another thing to actually believe it and live accordingly. And so with this man's response, Jesus can see that there's something that's out of alignment in his heart and in his head. He's an expert in the law, but something's out of whack. And, and this is a concern. This is a concern for this man, and it's a concern also for the people that he serves, that the belief that he holds in his mind wouldn't match with what's in his heart and the way he's actually living. I mean, think about it. If you're looking to someone as an authority and what they say they believe is true isn't matching with the way they live, you're going to be concerned. If you meet with a financial advisor and you get some great advice and you leave and you're filling up your car at a gas station and you see them walk out of the convenience store with a stack of lotto tickets, you're going to second guess the advice you just got, right? Or if you go to meet with a nutritionist and you're like, I am going to get my diet together. And the whole time they're giving you a consult, they're munching on ho-hos and drinking RC Cola. You're going to be concerned. You're going to wonder if you're getting good advice. And so here's this man who's an expert in the law. This guy, surely, he would have preached 15 sermons on how to love your neighbor as yourself. He would have known 10 rules for application that all, became with, all began with the same letter. But here he is looking for ways around it because he knows he can't meet that standard. Jesus, he senses a dichotomy in this man's spirit because this expert in the law, he's, what he's doing is he's re approaching his relationship with God as if, you know what, I've considered what God requires and I'm in a pretty good place. I think I'm matching up pretty well. I'm fulfilling my ethical obligations and this man, think about it, he's really on the in crowd and the religious establishment. He could have kicked all of our butts in Old Testament trivia. But Jesus can see that he's seeking to just him, justify himself before God with all of that. And in verse 30, Jesus tells this story to put a finger on the way in which his head and his heart are out of alignment. 
Let's listen to it and work our way through it. In verse 30, again, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And so this man who's at the center of the story, Jesus, he leaves his details unspecified, but he's making a trek that was well known to Jesus' hearers at this time, this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a journey of around 17 miles, uh, about the distance from Nashville down to Cool Springs. And what you need to know about this road is that it descended around 3,000 feet over those 17 miles. It was known to be rugged and winding. Uh, If you're a hiker or you're a runner or a walker, if you're a cyclist, you know the app Strava. This road would have been a, a popular Strava route, I imagine, at that time. 17 miles with a lot of elevation gain. Uh, pardon me, elevation descent. You definitely would want to go downhill. It would have been a popular, a popular route, except for the fact that with all of its twists and turns and rugged places terrain, uh, it was a great place to be victimized. Robbers love to camp out here. They could easily hide and ambush someone. They'd get away quickly after making a strike on an isolated traveler. And so this was the kind of road where if you were journeying by yourself, you'd in a moment think you were fine, and then all of a sudden you would realize this was a huge mistake. You ever been on a road like that? Uh, a while back, my wife and I were visiting with friends in the LA area, and we went to a Lakers game downtown. And if you've ever been through LA, traffic can be an absolute mess. And so we Google mapped our way to the fastest uh, route through traffic to get to the stadium. And uh, we were a bit unsettled. As we traveled, we began to realize that the fastest route through downtown LA had the least traffic for a reason. It turns out that not that many people care to sit at stoplights on Skid Row. Thankfully, we made it through without incident. I probably lost a pound of sweat out of my hands, but uh, we did find a different way home, and that certainly was a memory, but not a road that we cared to travel twice, and many would have felt the same way about this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, because as we heard, the story goes, this man, he gets jumped, and the robbers, they beat him up, they take his clothes, which were a precious commodity in Jesus' day, and they leave him half dead. But as we progress through the story, thankfully, this man isn't the only one making the journey on this day. Continuing in verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. What a fortunate thing. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so just like this this expert in the law that Jesus is telling the story to, this Jewish priest, he would have known the law inside and out. He would have known all about his obligations to love his neighbor, but what happens when he comes upon this man in need? He cuts a diagonal as quick as he can. This man is in need of help, but the priest, he, he cuts a diagonal and passes by along the other side of the road. Jesus, he doesn't indicate why. Maybe this priest had somewhere he needed to be. Maybe he was concerned for his own safety. If this guy just got jumped, the same is going to happen to me. Or at that time, there would have been obligations for him as a priest to maintain ritual laws of cleanliness. And if he was to touch a dead man, not knowing if this man was alive or not, if he's half dead, I mean, maybe he thought he'd become unclean. Whatever the reason, this priest who worked in a religious helping profession, it was his job to be a man who mirrored God's heart for mercy. He doesn't stop. He he cuts this diagonal. He continues on. And so next up on the road comes a Levite, picking back up in verse 32. 
When he came to the place and saw him, he too passed by on the other side. And so a Levite, this man, was also a member of the Jewish inner circle. He would have worked alongside priests in the Jewish temple. He knew his responsibilities according to Scripture. But again, he, fulfill, he fails to fulfill his obligation, passing by along the other side of the street. Could have been for any one of the same reasons of, of the priest that he would have passed by. Again, it doesn't really matter. What matters is this guy knew his obligations to God to be merciful, but he fails to act. Finally, we come to verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whenever you spend, and whatever you spend, I will pay you when I come back. You know, sometimes when we're reading scripture, it's hard to know what tone of voice these words uh, would have been communicated with if the author, we could hear them share the story, or if we could have been a fly on the wall as the conversation that's recorded was, being take, was taking place. I want to help you understand how Jesus would have told this point in the story. Have you ever seen an old movie where a plot turn occurs in a dramatic way and it's a surprise to all the characters on screen. Just to give you an idea of what I'm envisioning, like imagine a Western movie and it's that classic plot where the moment comes when the humble hero is about to unmask the villain who's been uh, a thief and he's been robbing all the stagecoaches. You've seen these kind of movies, right? There's this dramatic moment where the guy's wearing a mask and he's going to pull him off. Uh, pull off that mask and reveal who this thief was. And it turns out to be the sheriff, who you thought was a little bit of a, a snake all along, right? And what happens is the camera flashes to people's face and it goes, ba-ba! And there's this massive unveiling and everyone's shocked, right? What I want you to know is this would have been that kind of moment. When Jesus introduces the Samaritan here in this story, it was in the emphatic tense. He placed the word first in the sentence, which in the Jewish language, that would have put it in the emphatic tense. And so when the average Jewish listener would have heard Jesus introduce a Samaritan here as the hero of the story, it would have been that kind of unveiling moment where they about spat out whatever they were drinking. You know, the author, D.A. Carson, he points out, according to Jewish tradition, there were three groups typically acknowledged as part of Jewish society, priests, Levites, and the people. And so for Jesus to drop in a Samaritan here would have been totally unexpected. And the average listener would have just been shocked. I mean, if you're a Jewish person, you hear this, not only did Jesus just leave you out of the story, but he just subbed in someone who you think is a bad guy in your place. Because what we need to recognize is at this point in time, there was a long held animosity between Samaritans and Jews. Samaritans were despised in Jewish culture as ethnic outsiders and people with bad theology, with mixed up theology about who God was, what it took to live right before him. And so there was significant tension between these two parties. And so when Jesus subs in a Samaritan as the hero of the story, it would have been an absolute shock. You know, we actually get a little bit of a display about this, of this tension between the Jewish people and Samaritans in just the chapter previous in Luke's gospel. 
There's a story where Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem with the disciples and he sends them ahead of him to prepare a place for them to stay for the night in a Samaritan village. And the Samaritan townspeople just totally refuse them hospitality. They shut them down. And so the disciples, they go to Jesus and they wanna cast down lightning on the Samaritans. Do you remember this story? And Jesus has to settle them down. Chill out, guys. It's going to be all right. We'll press on. But that's the level of animosity between these two parties. Just a short time later, Jesus shares this parable. And who's the hero of the story? The good Samaritan. You know, those words are familiar to us. But the original hearers of this story would have heard them together and they would have thought, never in a million years. Because the Samaritan, he's the one who actually lives out God's word with faithfulness. He's the one who makes an effort to stop and help. He's compassionate and generous in taking care of this man's need. The text tells us that he cleans and soothes this man's wounds using costly wine and oil. He gives this man his own transportation, loading him onto his donkey, he takes him to an inn, and gives the innkeeper two denarii. And what we need to know is it would have taken about a 24th of that. Jesus gives this man 24, 24 times what would have been needed to take care of him for a day. Twelfth of denarius is what it took to live for a day. And so Jesus, he goes above and beyond in providing for this man, the good Samaritan. So let's go back to those questions I shared at the outset. Think about the big idea that Jesus is communicating here. And I think it's helpful for us to remember. Jesus, he tells this story in response to a question, right? The question is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And what we need to know is that the Hebrew word for neighbor, rea, it means a person with whom someone has something to do. A neighbor in Jewish society was a person with whom someone has something to do. So most people took that as an indicator that their obligations were really to someone who shared their ethnic or religious identity. But with this parable, Jesus, he answers that question, who is my neighbor, in a way that broadened the definition significantly. And his definition, it's very simple, but it's also very profound and totally countercultural in his own religious context. Because with this parable, Jesus says, your neighbor is the person that God puts in front of you who needs your love. Your neighbor is the person God puts in front of you who needs your love, full stop. And so if we think about this expert in the law, this is a man who, like we heard, he was seeking to justify himself by thinking that he was doing pretty well and loving his neighbor, right? But what the passage tells us is that in order for him to feel that way, he had to justify himself. And whatever, what inevitably happens when we have that kind of behavior is we start our own mental filtering criteria, right? Like here are the boxes that need to be checked in order for me to really love someone. I mean, they need to be a person who fit these categories and these requirements. They need to be within the criteria that makes sense that I can really handle that in terms of my own ability to care for them well, if, if really our effort is to justify ourselves and feeling as if we're good. 
And this man, when he approached God, we see here, he was seeking to justify himself. He thought on his own two feet he was doing enough. He'd, he'd hit all the boxes. But what Jesus says about that with this passage is that really for us to love in the way that God requires us to love our neighbor, to love the person that God puts in front of us who needs our love, to do that well, we've got to hit unselect on all of the filtering criteria. Because God loves all people made in his image. God loves all people made in his image. He cares about all people and our obligation is to love the people that God loves. And Jesus tells this story to humble religious people like this expert in the law, because what we see here is that there are sometimes people like the Good Samaritan, two words that we never would expect to see together, someone who is far from God in the minds of people who met the religious establishment. Sometimes people who are far from God do a whole lot better of a job than loving their neighbor than those who are really religious. And what matters to God is unconditional love. That's what Jesus is putting on display here. And I think for you and I to really allow Christ's teaching to hit home in our own hearts, we need to allow this passage to make us a little bit uncomfortable. We need to allow it to make us uncomfortable because this story, it is beautiful and inspiring, right? It gives us a, it gives us a wonderful example of the type of love that you and I are to aspire to. But I think if we're honest about our own hearts, this passage should also be a little bit daunting, right? Because the second question that we're answering here, what does this story show us about what it takes for us to be right with God? And this part is nodding to that question, how can I inherit eternity? What does it take to be right with God? These two questions are intertwined. If Jesus' answer to that is that you and I love our neighbor unconditionally, that is an impossible bar for us to hit, right? We cannot do that. We can't do it. And so just like this expert in the law, what many of us do is we establish our own filtering criteria in seeking to justify ourselves. Hey, here are the people who I can realistically care for. This is the definition that I've established for my own neighbor. If you meet my values in these ways, if you act according to the ethical standards that I've established in my own mind as appropriate, if you display a certain level of competence in your own behavior, then yes, I can love you. But is that enough? Is that God's standard? I think when we consider what Jesus is teaching us with this story, yes, he does give us a model of what unconditional looks like, unconditional love looks like, pardon me. But I think with this story, first and foremost, what Jesus does want for us is that we'd be humbled by this story and confess to God, there is absolutely no way I can do this. I cannot love my neighbor as myself. I can't love perfectly, let alone unconditionally. And I am done trying to justify myself with my own standards. I can't even meet my own. Jesus wants this story to drive to us and say, my only hope is in the mercy of God. 
And scripture tells us there's only one person who ever truly loved without condition, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who lived without sin and met the perfection that God requires. And he loves you and I so completely that he gave his very life to justify us. That when we confess our need for mercy and our complete inability to meet the perfection that God requires, his righteousness, his perfect standard could be what the Father sees when he looks at us. That's the gift that we are given by grace. The only way is mercy. Because left to ourselves, you and I, we have, we're mixed in our own motivations, right? In a thousand ways, we want to focus on the things that we can bring to the table to give us a leg to stand on in our relationship with God, but we come up short. Thank God in Jesus, we see that our God is compassionate to us. Jesus has shown us the mercy of God in the ultimate way and giving his life on our behalf. That's something you and I, each of us, can experience in a personal way. Like I said, when we simply confess our need for a savior and look to him. And what's really amazing about this is that when we turn to Jesus for mercy, that's when we experience the change in our hearts that actually allow us to love others in an unconditional way. Because we know that we've received ourselves the unconditional love of God not by anything that we've done to justify it, but because of costly grace and because of sacrificial love and a generous spirit towards us that was expressed in the ultimate way. And this really leads us into the last question. What does this story say about how we ought to relate to others? What this story shows us is that the Christian life is about reflecting the mercy that we've received. The Christian life is about reflecting the mercy that we have received. Because God desires that you and I would be integrated people whose heads and our hearts and our hands would all tell the same story. They would all point to the gospel. God desires us to reflect with our own words and actions the same generous sacrificial love that we ourselves have received without condition, no filtering criteria. And you know what? This is scary. I think that sometimes we in the church can think, if I love people without condition, could that be perceived that I'm approving of behavior or people who live a lifestyle or would act in a way that I totally don't approve of? I don't know if you've ever thought that. Without condition, with with no filtering criteria, loving people in that kind of way is dangerous. And I think that what we have to recognize is that what we're called to do is to love people unconditionally and to point them to Jesus. And it's Jesus' job to change people's hearts. And the Holy Spirit is totally able to do that as he does with each and every one of us who meet him, uh, who have met him and, and he's brought his grace into our lives. And I love the way Tim Keller has expressed what I just shared. Listen to this quote. He says, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. That is true for each of us. And I think we can have confidence in that when we reflect the unconditional love of Christ to our neighbor, the person who God has put in front of us who needs our love. We can love them unconditionally and we can pray and we can do everything that we can to help them experience transformation through Jesus because God sees us where we are. He loves us where we are and accepts us as we are, but by his grace, he doesn't leave us where we are. You know, 
we can't be all things to all people. We have our limitations, and at times we'll need to be wise in establishing boundaries. But also, as recipients of the transforming, life-saving grace of Jesus Christ, I hope you and I will be attentive to the opportunities that God gives us. Those moments when the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder. And those moments may come when you are in the gym and you feel a prompting to take out your earbuds and see that person who you see on a weekly basis and have a conversation and get to know them and maybe take a first step in finding out what's going on in their life. Uh, Maybe that conversation for you, that tap on the shoulder comes through uh, talking with your barista at a coffee shop and learning their name. Maybe for you, it's that neighbor who you run into at the mailbox and you ask them, what's going on in your life right now? Is there any, are there any ways I can support you or care for you? It seems like you've been carrying a burden recently. Uh, I wonder how God might be doing that in our lives, each of us, if we would be attentive to the ha- taps on the shoulder that the Holy Spirit gives us. Because the reality is, God gives us opportunities to reflect the mercy that we have received. And the Holy Spirit wants us to be a part of his redemptive work in other people's lives. So let's never take that for granted, all right? Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to hear from your word. We are grateful that apart from anything we have done, you reach out to us with unconditional love. Through your son Jesus, you've shown that to us in the ultimate way. And God, I'm grateful that all of us who found hope in your son, we have an opportunity to reflect the mercy that we've received. Would you give us attention to our neighbor, the person you've put in front of us, who we can love, because you love them. God, we know that you give us opportunities to do that in our everyday lives. And sometimes those are things that were not on our agenda. And they are unplanned and they are inconvenient, but they are incredibly important and they have the potential to be transformative moments that people look back on and see your presence in their life through them. And so would you give us an attention to your Holy Spirit not to miss those moments, but to step out with boldness and courage knowing that you are with us, that we would be able to reflect the mercy that we have received through your son Jesus in whose name we pray together. Amen.